In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's classic adventure series for children and for adults, Lewis casts a great lion named Aslan as the Christ figure. Even young children can recognize the connection between Aslan and Jesus when Aslan dies in the place of the young boy named Edmund in order to pay the price of his redemption. The night before that death, Aslan agonizes with his followers and then alone. Dies and rises again and comes to see his followers. Anyone that is thinking and that has some biblical knowledge can draw the parallel between the two. But I think in other respects, the works of Aslan seem to have more in common with the Holy Spirit than they do with Jesus. For instance, Aslan, like the wind, chooses to blow in and out of Narnia at will. No one ever knows when he will leave or when he will return. And whatever he does, whenever he comes, it's always good for his people. This theme, I think, parallels the ministry of the Spirit of God fairly well. Think of the Father. No one has ever seen the Father, for God is Spirit, says John in 118 and 424. And think of the Son. Jesus came once to earth to reveal the Father to us, John 114 and 149. And we await the second and final return of Jesus Christ to earth, and we have waited for a long time. But the Spirit of God has had a long career of comings and goings, as it were. Times when His presence and powerful influence are felt and seen by God's people. Other times when it is not so evident. I mean this not in absolute terms, for the Spirit of God is the animating force of the human race. He is literally the breath of life. Genesis 2 Zechariah 12 and verse 1, Psalm 104 and verse 30. The Spirit of God gives life to humanity. Scripture also teaches that the Spirit of God persistently battles depravity in this fallen world. He stands up to it and he fights it and will to the very end until God tells him to stop. But Scripture also teaches that God's Spirit comes and goes as it were. There are times of unique and powerful visitation upon God's people. Realizing this truth enhances all the more the wonder and the significance of Christ's first coming into this world. The first coming of Jesus marked a dramatic return of God's Spirit to earth. A return to active intervention in the affairs of the world. To see this is to gain a greater appreciation of God's redemptive plan in Christ, which leads to a greater adoration of Jesus. We must begin with a summary of the Old Testament and the Spirit's ministry there. And we don't have to go very far as we understand the Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament, as that that will prepare us to understand His ministry in the coming of Christ. Exhibit 1 we find in the second verse of the Old Testament Scriptures, if you will turn there to Genesis 1 and verse 2. And remember these familiar words that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We come to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, and we note this parenthetical statement revealing that immediately after creation, water molecules and the elements of matter coexisted in a sort of chaotic, shapeless, yet unenergized sea. 
And the text of Scripture reads, Genesis 1-2, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God creates, verse 1, and the Spirit of God hovers like an eagle hovering over her young. The Spirit of God is presented here as the governing presence and the sustaining power of God operating for the good of His creation. As the Old Testament unfolds, this emphasis upon the Spirit's activity becomes very pointed in His relationship to the nation of Israel. God works out His saving purposes there, and the Spirit of God works actively and specifically to save His people. So exhibit two, we see the Spirit of God not only in the creation of the world, but the Spirit of God and the kingdom of Israel. Turn to Numbers chapter 11 and verse 16. In this context, we find Moses complaining that he cannot feed the people of Israel. He cannot lead the people of Israel on his own, in his own strength. Of course, he needs God, but he also needs others to come alongside and to help. In Numbers chapter 11 and verse 16, the Lord says to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. The Spirit of God has uniquely empowered Moses. And now we read, I will come down, says God, and speak with you there. I will take the Spirit that is on you and put the Spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. The Spirit's ministry to Moses to lead these several million people out of Egypt and to lead them through the most difficult of circumstances will now be placed on these 70 elders of Israel to help Moses with the task. Jumping ahead in time, Israel enters the promised land but fell far from God's purposes but God's Spirit again visited the people when God empowered certain judges of Israel so as to preserve the holy nation. Judges chapter 3 and verse 10. We find in this confusing time in Israel's history that the Spirit of God comes back, as it were. In chapter 3 and verse 10, we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, that is, Othniel, came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war and carried out the purposes of God in preserving the children of Israel. Chapter 6 and verse 33, this theme continues, and we must not make light of it. The Spirit's work upon these judges is crucial. Judges chapter 6, beginning at verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And we know that God then gave a tremendous deliverance to the Israelites through Gideon's work. Judges 11 and verse 29, we read of the work of Jephthah. And read again this statement that the Spirit of the Lord in 1129, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. The Spirit's empowering presence is witnessed most clearly of all the judges, probably in the life of Samson. Let's go to chapter 13 and verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. It gets almost monotonous by this point in the book. One after another after another. This circular pattern of enemies coming in and defeating Israel. At this time, verse 2, a certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile, and she remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Manoah's wife tells him about the vision. Then Manoah himself hears from the angel. Chapter 13 and verse 24, the woman eventually gives birth to a boy and names him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. Notice this phrase, verse 25. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahana, Dan, between Zorah and Estiel. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. God was at work among his people through his Spirit. Remember this point. We'll come back to it. An infertile couple, childless couple, to whom God promises a son. This son is empowered by the Spirit to save Israel's enemies. Remember that. We see again this theme in 14 and verse 6 in Samson's life. The Spirit of the Lord, 14.6, came upon him in power so that he tore a lion apart with his bare hands. In verse 19 of this same chapter, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, and he went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to these others, these other friends that he had, or enemies by now. Chapter 15 and verse 14. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came upon him, shouting, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, and the ropes on his arms became like charred flax. All of these occasions of the great power of Samson, there is evidence of the Spirit of God coming upon him to preserve the holy nation. This happens, of course, at the end of Samson's life. The Spirit of God is not mentioned there specifically, clearly. It is the Spirit's power that brings that final destruction of the thousands of Philistines in Samson's final act. We think of the kings of Israel. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 10. As the ministry of the judges gives way to the ministry of the kings, we find again that God is active through His Spirit on the kings of Israel. Chapter 10 and verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? Be thinking here, Moses, the judges, and others. The Spirit of God coming in a unique way. We have here the anointing of the first king of Israel. Verse 9 of this chapter, we read, As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled this day. When they arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon Saul in power, and he joined in their prophesyings. Saul learns later of the Ammonites, that they had besieged the Israeli city of Jabesh-Gilead in chapter 11 and verse 6. We read that Saul heard their words, and the Spirit of God came upon him in power and burned with anger. 
Like the judges of old, Saul defeats the Ammonites. Verse 11. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We find this connection between the king of Israel and the Spirit of God made very specific for us. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. This is not the loss of salvation, but this is a unique work of God's Spirit upon the King of Israel. The Spirit of God on Saul is removed, and the Spirit of God ministers now in a unique way to David, who you remember will pray later after the sin with Bathsheba. Take not your spirit from me. David knew of the power of the Spirit of God in the life of the king. We see this spirit in the prophets. We will not take time to survey the life of Elijah and Elisha, but you know the consistent repetition of this idea that God's Spirit comes with power upon Elijah, who performs many miracles to preserve the kingdom of Israel. In the end, Elijah's spirit was transferred to Elisha, who continued that same powerful ministry. We see of the spirits coming in the life of prophets such as Daniel chapter 4 and Joseph even in Genesis 41 and verse 38. The spirit of God coming to them that they may proclaim the dreams of the kings and know the future. It's even found in someone like Bezalel, remember, in, in Genesis chapter 35, where the Spirit of God comes upon him to be able to carry out artistic works in the preparation of the tabernacle. Exhibit 2, the Spirit of God in the kingdom of Israel. Exhibit 3, the Spirit of God in the Messianic age. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God empowered leaders to advance God's cause, but the prophets also look forward to a day when all of God's people would enjoy the presence of God's Spirit. Let's look to the prophet Joel, chapter 2, and I'd like you to focus here and remember this statement by Joel, as we will return to it, Lord willing, at the end. Joel 2 and verse 28. Remember this work of the Spirit of God upon individual leaders of Israel. But there is this prophetic word in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And afterward I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Now there is indication at verse 30 and following that he's talking about the great cataclysmic end, the time of great wonders in the heavens. But there is also this idea of the pouring out of the Spirit upon all peoples. And that is a unique and important concept. So as the prophets of Israel wrote, the future age of the outpouring of the Spirit was a day they wanted Israel to anticipate and would be inaugurated by the coming of the Messiah. As you look to the Messiah, look for the return of the Spirit of God. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Note the connection between Messiah and the Spirit of God. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. 
The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. These clear prophecies of Messiah. Note again the connection with the Spirit of God. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Where have you heard that before? Jesus uses this idea and refers to himself with this very text of Scripture. Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. And Jesus will quote this passage. But one more exhibit in the Old Testament, and that is the Spirit of God and the inspiration of Scripture. Interspersed with God's unique empowerment of the leaders of Israel was His consistent revelatory work with the prophets. Remember what Peter says, Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All that we have in the Old Testament texts are evidence of the Spirit's work in the writers of Scripture to write on the page what God intended to have written. The prophets repeatedly preface their remarks with, This is what God says. And there was a pervasive sense in Israel that this work of God in the text of Scripture was an ongoing work of the Spirit of God on earth. But with the prophet Malachi, the unique empowering presence of God's Spirit seemed to cease. For 400 years, there was no written revelation. There was no biblical leader uniquely empowered to advance God's salvation program. Gerald Hawthorne writes, from whom I borrowed many thoughts in this sermon, in his presence and the power that the rabbinic tradition of Israel up to the time of Jesus leans solidly toward the notion that the Holy Spirit was gone. Not in the ultimate sense of having nothing to do with the breath of life in people, but in the sense of his activity in Israel, the Spirit had been gone since Malachi. I go back to C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. The lion, the witch, in the wardrobe, Susan asks Mr. Beaver, Who is Aslan? And Mr. Beaver replies in part, He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. Not often here. All the evidences of the Spirit of God's activity in the Old Testament were strung out along a very long time period. There were massive gaps in this unique working of the Spirit of God. And God's Spirit had seemed to have abandoned Israel four centuries earlier, but there was always the hope. There was always the messianic hope that the Spirit would visit Israel again. Hope that the Messiah would be revealed in the power of the Spirit. Israel had a long and glorious heritage of the Spirit's operation in the nation. Many hoped now for a fresh wind to blow in, to borrow the language of the Chronicles, that Aslan would come again. It is with this background in view that we come to the New Testament texts. 
And we look at the Spirit of God in the birth narratives of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1. The Gospel of Matthew, as you can see, begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It is a genealogy that begins with Abraham and ends in verse 16 with Jesus. We remember this break in the pattern of the genealogy. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. The question is directly addressed as to Jesus' parentage and why this strange phrase at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. My attempt this morning is to build a nest for that phrase. To help us to see that phrase, Holy Spirit, that we probably read through very quickly and without much contemplation, if it's possible, this thing would be flashing in lights in the text. Through the Holy Spirit. This happens before they come together. That is, before there is sexual union between Mary and Joseph. Through the Holy Spirit, the Greek ek, by the Holy Spirit, the idea is that the Spirit of God initiated the conception of Christ. The Spirit was what Hawthorne calls the active, efficient cause or the generative force of Christ's conception. Neither Joseph nor any other man was involved in the conception of Jesus, a point the angel makes very clear to Joseph in verse 20. But after he had considered divorcing Mary... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, the Greek word ek is used here, from or by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God effected the conception that took place in Mary's womb. Or to say it another way, the Spirit of God, listen to it, came upon Mary. He came upon Mary. Now it's interesting that Matthew does not take time to explain the Holy Spirit to us. He assumes that his readers know who the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit functions. We are expected to see the significance of the fact that after 400 years of silence, the Spirit had blown into town again. God was once again exerting His power directly on the earth for the good of His people. Hawthorne puts it this way, This event is the connecting link between the Spirit's work in the Old Testament and His work in the New. It is through the Holy Spirit that Jesus is conceived. Luke makes this connection even more pointedly than does Matthew. Luke chapter 1 and we notice popping up throughout these texts references to the Spirit of God. And this is a scene, I mentioned, remember Samson and his parents. This is a scene that is uniquely, uncannily similar to the birth narrative of Samson. We could draw parallels for quite a while. But the angel of God appears to Zechariah and to Elizabeth a barren couple. And the angel reveals that Elizabeth will bear a son like Samson of old, and this man will never drink wine, 
and he will be greatly used of God. Verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Verse 16, many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's not a throwaway phrase. The Spirit of God will come upon John. God has come again in his spirit to work on earth. In the spirit and power of Elijah, John will minister. And he would do this to prepare people for the Lord. Who is the Lord? Chapter 1 and verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. Did you hear it? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, verse 35, hear these words. Hear them anew. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. There is verbal linkage there to the Old Testament ministry of the Spirit of God. By this phrase, we are to understand that God's Holy Spirit was once again active in the world. The Spirit would overshadow Mary and create life. Psalm 104 and verse 30. The idea is not that God will cohabit with Mary. And as we read this text, that might be something that comes to mind. Is the Holy Spirit cohabiting with Mary? Is that how this son is conceived? There's many scholars who have seen that link to pagan mythology of God's cohabiting with human beings. Is that what's going on here? Is that how the Spirit of God overshadows Mary? Well, you answer the question in your own mind. Is that what is going on here? There's a key here, in fact, for all kinds of critics of Scripture and scholarly debate. When you find individuals who seem to be paralleling the New Testament text to Greek philosophy and Greek scholars, always stop there and think. There are parallels, clearly, in the New Testament to Greek culture. But always stop and think there, and just remember this. The Bible of the Apostles was the Old Testament, and they knew it very well. They knew it much better than they knew their Greek mythology. We should always look for a reason in what the New Testament authors write in the text of the Old Testament. If you're thinking in Greek mythological terms, you could say the Holy Spirit is cohabiting with Mary. A God has come down to earth to have sex with a woman and there will be a baby. We've seen this before in the myths. 
But think like a New Testament author thinks and you will be rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. What does that phrase mean that he will overshadow you? He will come upon you. The point is that the Spirit of God would come upon Mary in power for the good of his people, just as the Spirit had come upon others in the past. He had come upon Samson. He had come upon the prophets of Israel. He had come upon David the king and others. And in like manner, the Spirit of God had come again and was going to come upon and overshadow Mary. The parallel is not to pagan mythology. It is rather to the overshadowing Spirit of God who hovers over the physical creation in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. In similar fashion, the Spirit would now hover over Mary as God creates a physical body for His eternal Son. That is my thought. It's untested, but you test it. I do have this thought from a great scholar, Hawthorne, I quote again. Just as God did not create the first Adam ex nihilo, but chose to form him from the dust of the ground, from the earth he was subsequently to inhabit and over which he was to rule, so the Spirit of God did not create the last Adam, Jesus, out of nothing, but shaped him from the substance of a human mother. He thus maintained the organic connection between the two humanities. The parallels here are stunning. Both Adams have no human father. Both Adams are created directly by God from existing material. Adam from the earth and Jesus from Mary. And both were created sinless. But this baby will not perpetuate the sin of the first Adam. This Adam will break sin's neck. He will initiate a mission, as one has called it, of radical humanization, as those who unite to him become one with him. And the Spirit's presence is everywhere in the life of Jesus. And in this birth narrative, verse 41 of Luke 1, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 67 of chapter 1, the father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. Luke chapter 2 and verse 25, after the birth of Jesus... Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Spirit again is revealing truth to his people. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, think of it, Old Testament, think of the roots. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Through the leading of the Spirit of God, Simeon realizes that Messiah has come. The one who will rule the earth is here. And one of the proofs that Messiah has come is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. The linkage between Christ's ministry and that of the Spirit's renewed activity is repeatedly emphasized. We go to chapter 3 and verse 15. 
John the Baptist's ministry as he announces Jesus. We pick up in the middle there of verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Messiah had come, and the Spirit of God had come. The Messianic age had dawned. Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit of God descends on him in bodily form so that there is no question. The Spirit is back and he rests on Messiah. John 1, 32, I'll just quote, says, John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, Revelation, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Jesus made this same connection himself. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is Jesus saying? Quoting Isaiah 61, Messiah had come and the Spirit was with him. God's Holy Spirit was again active in the world. So we ask the question, how do we know who Jesus is? How do we know that he is the Savior of the world? I think apologetically I have been very oriented toward answering that question from a prophetic standpoint. You want to know why I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died and that He rose again, that He is who He says that He is? I take you back to the Old Testament prophets, and I say, you explain this string of thousands of years of individuals making specific prophecies, naming the place where Messiah will be born, naming His family, and on and on it goes. You explain that. But I think today, I trust we can be equipped to say there's another argument, and that's the coming of the Spirit of God. He was here, and it was evidence that Jesus was exactly who he said that he was. We know by way of prophetic preparation, but we also know by way of the activity of the Spirit. Listen to Paul, who says in Romans 1, who, speaking of Jesus, who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. 
But this realization not only confirms who Jesus is and increases our adoration of him and the wonder of his ministry on earth, this realization dramatically affects our lives. John prophesied, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly what Jesus does in Acts chapter 2. At Pentecost, Jesus baptizes his followers in the Spirit. And what does Peter quote as he explains that event? He goes to Joel chapter 2. The messianic age of the Spirit has dawned in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The evidence, the Spirit's come. He's here and as has been prophesied, Jesus Messiah has baptized His people in the Spirit of God. He has poured out His Spirit. He reigns in heaven. He is active in His people. His Spirit is everywhere. The age is not fully consummated, but the Spirit's activity on earth has been poured out on His people. Joel 2 is not completely fulfilled yet at this place, but the beginnings have happened. Believers, I quote these words. From the Apostle Paul, those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, he says this, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. Those, continues Paul, who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You remember that strange phrase that Jesus said one day? It will be good that I leave. Believe me, it will be good that I leave. Because when I leave, I will send the Spirit of God on all of you. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. In Christ, we are a new creation generated by the Holy Spirit. As believers, we have become one with the new Adam through regeneration, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. We have been equipped to live for the glory of God the Father in union with Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Does He live in you? If you come here week after week after week and you hear God's Word, and in fact you have been listening to this sermon and you just really can't make any sense of it, or in fact, frankly, care, you really need to think at this moment whether the Spirit of God lives in you. Do you come week after week and hear God's Word and it makes no sense and you really couldn't care less? God's truth resonates with the Spirit of God that dwells within. And if it is frankly all a bunch of theology, perhaps even myth, and stories, you need to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. Your only hope is that He would come and save you from your lostness. I don't say this 
for any other reason than to say, you need to consider. You need to know whether or not the Spirit of God lives within you. And if He does, does it not bring a joy and a thrill to the core of your being that God's Spirit is active in me? He is active in my life. He empowers the words of witness that I can speak by His grace and for His glory. He is in my life to purify and to change and to develop me. There's a convicting work of the Spirit in my life as a believer in Jesus Christ. The power of God is operative in my life. Do you know the experience of the conviction of sin? Do you know the experience of the Spirit of God placing His finger upon your life? He came in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is here, living within His people. Is He at work in your life? Do the words of Scripture come alive? If not, this, I would trust, would be a day of dawning. And I would encourage you to go home. And I would encourage you to pray and to seek the face of God and ask Him to give life to your dead soul. You will never, ever be sorry that you did. As God answers that prayer, He will give you life and His Word will come alive and your life will have a sense of the presence of the power of God in you. And every Christmas will be a Merry Christmas. And every day will be a day of joy. I call you to consider your heart before the Lord today. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we give thanks to you for the truth of your word. We are awed by how intricately it is designed. I give you praise and I give you thanks. And I just say in behalf of your people, we are stunned and awed by the greatness of your plan through Jesus Christ. We thank you that the Spirit has come, that he has been poured out on all kinds of people who have come to saving faith in Christ and have been baptized in the Spirit of God. And I pray that his presence and his power would be evidenced in our lives as he sanctifies us and convicts us and changes us and shows us his truth. I pray this for your people and ask that you will strengthen us to this end. For any who know you not as Savior, I ask that you would bring the light of Christ into their life today, that they will see him for who he is and embrace him as the Savior. May you answer our prayers as we pray silently and come before you and ask, Father, for forgiveness and for change. I pray that the Spirit's activity would be increasing and growing and evidenced in our lives. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.